good morning to you guys. Good morning, everybody uh, online. Uh, it's good to have you as well. Um, yeah, it's just good to be here. And uh, we're uh, in week four, yeah, I think, uh, of the book of Genesis. We're looking at the first book of the Bible because it's both our origin, origin story and Israel's origin story. That's where we get the title. And we're asking many of the big questions in this series. Who are we? Who is God? Where did this all come from and why does it matter? And we're looking at this from a vantage point that may be unfamiliar to, the, to you. I was just talking to somebody who's like, I've never heard Genesis preached on this way. And that's uh, partially intentional because we're, we're trying to grapple with parts of our story that get overlooked or haven't been taken seriously enough. We think we really know this story. And my goal is to show us that it's actually far more unfamiliar to us than we realize. And, and I'm doing that um, by placing the story back in its original context in terms of how the people who uh, it was written by and to would have told the story and heard this story for the first time. Uh, and we didn't live 3,000 years ago. It's hard for us uh, to imagine what Genesis sounded like to them. And so I'm trying really hard to help us gain an imagination for that not just so that we are like better historians, but so that we can rehear this in our day, maybe in fresh ways. Does that make sense? So we're fleshing this out on Sundays, but we're also dialoguing about it on Wednesday nights. We're meeting at 8 p.m. on Wednesdays, asking questions, diving deeper into these concepts uh, in ways that we can't get to on Sunday morning. So if you want to join us, please uh, come and do that. You can join on Zoom, and if you need the info for that, you can see me afterwards. So, we've been asking the questions about creation, the why, the what, and the how, so far. And today, we get to the who. Who is the image of God? And what is the image of God? Who has it, and what is it? And I know that I promised that we would be out of Genesis 1 this week, but I lied. I'm sorry. We're still in Genesis 1. But I'll, we're in Psalm 8 too. So, I don't know. That's, there's, there's more than just Genesis 1. <laughs> we'll get out of Genesis 1, I promise. It may not be for two weeks or one and a half. Uh, we'll see. Genesis 1, verse 26 to 31, it says this. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky over the livestock and over all, and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. The, in the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds in the sky, and over every living creature that moves on the ground. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. Psalm 8, uh, Psalm eight verse 4 to 9, says this. What is mankind? That you are mindful of them, human beings that you care for them. You have made them a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honor. 
You made them rulers over the works of your hands. You put everything under their feet. All flocks and herds and animals of the wild, the birds in the sky and the fish in the sea and all that swim in the paths of the seas. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Friends, the good news that we proclaim today is that God is not merely tolerating you. Amen? He's not angered and annoyed by your foibles and failures. He created you, Psalm 8 says, to be a little lower than the angels. You are made for majesty. You are an icon of eternity, the crown jewel of a glorious masterpiece. Creation wasn't very good until you got there. And Jesus, he comes to restore and renew this image in us. He's not just a picture of who God is. I think most Christians understand that. He's also a picture of who we are. He is the paragon of personhood, the prototype of all humanity. And so the good news today is that we are saved by Christ's authority to bear Christ's authority. This is what it means to be made in the image of God. God trusts you. Your vocation is holy and sacred. And so let's consecrate our lives to him today. Fill in the line for me. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Uh, we, we sing that all the time. It's the most, I think, the most famous hymn that was ever written uh, for the church. And uh, who wrote it? Do you know his name? John Newton. 1750. Thanks. I was looking for that date. And Google failed me, but James, he comes through every time. I don't know if you know anything about John Newton, but he wasn't a very good dude. Don't take my word for it. Take his. This is what he says about himself. He says this, How industrious is Satan served. I was formerly one of his active under-tempters. And had my influence been equal to my wishes, I would have carried all the human race with me. A common drunkard is a petty sinner to what I was. John Newton was many things. Overdramatic? Perhaps. He was known as, a, as an inventor of vulgarity. He would use language to scandalize his religious shipmates in the 18th century. He was a ruffian and a brigand before coming to know this amazing grace. Why was John Newton so bad? Or what did he consider about himself so wretched? Well, he was a slave trader. He bought and sold human beings. So he considers himself a wretch if not for the grace of God. And probably rightly so. But this realization that I'm a wretch, it has a context. And the context is this, this understanding, this coming to grips with the fact that I've done, look, I mean, look what I've done to so many black men, women, and children over the course of my life. How wretched have I been? Because for him, realizing his own wretchedness, 
It's probably a healthy wake-up call, yeah? He needed to be confronted with his own depravity. Shameless men like John need to feel shame in order to understand grace. Like the, the shamefulness that he felt about his actions was a grace to him. It released him from his mindset and his, and his lifestyle. I don't know if you can relate to this, but the theology that I inherited when I came to know Jesus in college taught me that, this, that Newton's self-revelation about his own wretchedness, it wasn't just good for him, it was necessary for everyone. That the only way to be a serious Christian, to be saved even, is if I consider myself more bad than good, more wretched than righteous. That in order to be saved by grace, I first needed to be confronted with my own shame. In fact, the way that I was taught how to share the good news of the gospel was to highlight just how bad all of us are. And so it would go something like this. Hey, have you ever heard of the Ten Commandments? Yes. Okay, name some for me. Oh, I don't know. You shall not steal. Okay, have you ever stolen? Yes. Okay, that makes you a, a thief. Can you name any other ones? Yeah, um, lying, I think, is one of them. Have you ever lied? Yes. Okay, that makes you a liar. <laughs> so by your own admission, you've just said that you're a lying thief. Do you think that's true of you? You see what I'm doing? I'm turning the screws of your wretchedness in an attempt to get you to understand that you don't deserve grace, but God gives it to you anyway. This is the way that I learned how to proclaim good news. <laughs> Behind it is this understanding that if I, if I really want to understand myself the way that God sees me, then I need to use words like totally depraved, worthless, a worm, dung, a wretch. I was taught that it's faithful to consider yourself worthless. And that the only way that you'll ever be convinced that you need the heights of God's love is if you realize just how deep the depths of your badness go. Is this just me, or does anybody know what I'm talking about here? Now, we're going to get to Genesis 3 eventually, someday, I promise. <laughs> so you have to come back for that message. But, and there's something in Genesis 3, absolutely, that happens in the story of humans that is tragic and leads to terrible, awful consequences. That leads us to do terrible things like buy and sell human beings. Depraved, exploitative, abusive stuff. But friends, our story does not begin in Genesis 3. It doesn't begin with our badness. God isn't merely tolerating you as a wretch. He's not angered and annoyed by your foibles and failures. He's not disgusted with you. He created you to be a little lower than the angels. You were made for majesty. You're an icon of eternity. You're the crown jewel of His masterpiece. This entire project called creation wasn't very good until you got here. And Jesus, He comes to restore the dignity and the worth of all humanity. He's not just a picture of who God is. He's a picture of who we are. 
He's a prototype of humanity. And so the good news today, friends, is that you are not just saved by Christ's authority for some afterlife. You are saved by his authority to bear his authority in the world. As his image bearers, God trusts you. And he's looking for people that he can trust with his spirit. Your vocation, your work, and everything you put your hand to on this earth is sacred. So let's consecrate our lives to him today. Two questions about this image of God. Who has it and what is it? Who has it and what is it? We see from Genesis 1 that male and female are created in the image of God. Yeah? Friends, it's hard to exaggerate, and I like to because I'm a pastor, uh, how radical and subversive this or, this origin story, this poem is. In the ancient Near Eastern culture, when this was written, images of God and the gods were common. They were everywhere. They were set up in marketplaces and in temples and in homes. You couldn't get away from idols, statues, icons. And these icons, idols, statues, they were usually made in the image of someone. Who was the someone that they were made in the image of? You know? Typically the king or one of the other gods. The king was considered to be the image of God. He is God's representative for that culture. And most ancient cultures believed that the king was, who was leading their people was either an image of God or like in Babylon and Egypt, the king wasn't just an image of God. The king was a god. Think of the three pyramids in Giza. Have you ever seen pictures of those? What's guarding the three pyramids? A sphinx. This weird, like, man-headed lion thing. Well, what's it doing there? It's guarding the tombs of the gods because that's where the gods are buried. The kings, the pharaohs, were gods. They were God's representatives. So imagine that this is your understanding of the way the world works. The king is the god, or he is the representative of God. And then into that milieu, along comes Genesis 1, which says, no, it's humanity that's the image of God. And notice how the author does this in Genesis 1, 26 and 27. Let us make mankind, that word in Hebrew is Adam, humanity. Which you could think of, or at least it would have been thought of, especially if you know chapter 2, as a person, Adam, right? The first human. In Hebrew, it's Adam, um, here translated mankind. So let us make Adam in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule. This is kingly language, right? King's rule. So God created Adam, mankind, in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, not him, male and female, he created them. Did you catch it? The whole thing builds up to this enormous surprise. It's not just a king, but it's a dom. It's humans. And it's not just men, males, it's females. There's this democratization of the image of God from this solitary, powerful man to the community of women and men. The story of Genesis 1 is that God rules not through a king, but through you and me, through people. This is how he created the world to work. And this is one of the reasons that God gets so cranked up at Israel when they demand a king, you know? 
They're like, hey, we want a king like every other nation, 1 Samuel 8. And God gets really upset about it. And it's not just because God is already their king, although that's true. That's one side of this coin. But the other side of the coin is that God already had kings and queens in his nation to represent him. He's going, like, you all are my icons. You're my image bearers. And I've entrusted each and every one of you with my authority. Kings and queens, all of you. I love that the Chronicles of Narnia, when the kids get to Narnia, everyone's like, you're a, you're a daughter of Eve. You're a son of Adam. And what do they immediately assume about these children? They're all kings and queens. Each and every one of them bears the authority of Aslan, and they don't even know it yet. Now, they have to grow into that understanding, right? They have to live out of who they are, but they have no idea that they have this kind of majesty built into who they are. Back home, they're just pesky kids. But in Narnia, they rule over everything. And God's going to, to his nation, like, I've already given you this authority. Don't give it away. This king that you want so badly, he's going to end up exploiting you. He's going to take the best cattle and the best land for himself. And you're going to be left with less authority than what I intended for you to have. Don't give it away. This means in asking for a king, they've they've forgotten who God is, but they've also forgotten who they are. This is the same reason that the Bible prohibits the making of of images in, in, um, in the Ten Commandments. Same reason. Don't set up little statues that you think look like the gods. Look in a mirror. Look at your neighbor. That's where you'll find my image. Don't set up this little clay thing, cover it with gold, and think that that's going to save you. I've made you into a community that has the authority to help everyone to flourish. Don't give that authority away. There's so much more to me than that. Don't forsake who you are. Friends, who is the image of God? It's you and it's me. It's you and it's me. We're made a little lower than the angels. The angels in Psalm 8 is uh, the word Elohim. It's the heavenly or divine council. It's the angelic beings. Sometimes it's referred to God himself. Why is this important? It's important because historically Christians have not done a good job affirming this in our words and our actions. Historically, we've done a pretty bad job at honoring the dignity of every human being because they, they're made to bear God's image and authority in the world. I've already mentioned that John Newton was a slave trader, right? Did you know that the whole concept of race was invented by slave traders? The whole reason that we think in terms of white and non-white categories is because of, uh, of the fact that Portuguese slave traders in the 17th century had to figure out a way to justify the fact that they were making loads of gold off of selling Africans to places like Europe and the Americas. They had to figure out a way to justify their cruelty. And so they came up with these categories of white and black to justify their their actions. And so this modern concept of race that we've inherited was invented to justify the dehumanization of someone made in the image of God. And it's been running like that ever since. Historically, not all humans have been icons. Also, the church has not done a very good job at honoring the dignity and the worth of women. 
one of the reasons why Genesis 1 is so radical is because it leads to this surprise that women are on par with men in terms of both their image-bearing ability and their authority-bearing nature. Co-regents over creation. Men and women working side by side as equals is the picture that Genesis 1 gives. And yet it, it wasn't until the last century that Christians uh, weren't regularly arguing for the fact that women were somehow physically, mentally, and emotionally deficient from men. The church was doing this. In some pockets, it still is. Um, I, can, I could name at least three pretty famous dudes. You would know the names of at least two out of the three who still teach this. That men are made in the image of God, but women are like a deficient version of man. I think Genesis 1 has a lot to say to that. The point is that as Jesus' church, this, this good news inherent in our origin story is something that we've done a poor job of stewarding. And so we need to be clear. We have to be clear on this. Every single person in the world is created in God's image. Male, female, black, white, Jew, Gentile, gay, straight, cisgendered, transgendered, made in the image of God, native-born immigrant. Every single one made in the image of God, an icon of eternity, made for majesty. Creation isn't very good until every single person is in creation. And Christ comes. He, he comes into creation not to destroy that image, not to just call it bad, not to uh, shame those for the ways that that image has been distorted and degraded over time, but He comes to reveal who we really are, to restore our image-bearing ability, to redeem in them the image of God that God put in there from the very start. So that by His authority, He can save them so that they can bear His authority for Him. This is the good news today, friends, that each of you, your very goodness runs deeper than your very badness. Your very goodness began before any wrongness that lives in you. God isn't disgusted annoyed, perturbed, flustered with you when he looks at you. You are very good. Number two, what is the image and, and how do we image God? We're told to be fruitful and multiply, yeah? Um, humans aren't the only ones that do that job. The birds and the bees do that really well, right? So we're told. <clears throat> they don't seem to have any trouble being fruitful and multiplying. But the thing that's particular to Humans is the command that we see in verse 28. It's this, to fill the earth and subdue it. To fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves along the ground. Subdue and rule. And let me say, these terms, we, we've often used them in negative ways, right? Just as we haven't done a good job stewarding the first part of our identity, I don't think we've done a great job stewarding this part either. 
Because we've, we've taken terms like rule and we've turned it into words like dominate and subjugate. Oftentimes, this text is used as a rationalization for the way that we exploit and consume from creation. We were on the call, and Pete was talking about creation being this idea of the temple of God and, and the fact that he experiences God in it and sees the need for its protection. And it's, it's interesting because he's, he's not American, but he, he felt this impulse because he was on a call surrounded by Americans that if he was going to even mention the idea of creation care, he needed to tamper it with this notion that I'm not trying to give a political statement. <laughs> right? Because he realizes in America to talk about creation and its care, to talk about scary things like climate, is to wade into a political discussion, potentially. Friends, Genesis 1 and ancient Near Eastern culture, specifically Israel, care of creation is not a political discussion. It's a theological one. This week, I just I heard the message again, and it makes me mad every time I hear it, which is why i got to come to you all <laughs> and confess my anger. But I heard this message again. The sermon wasn't even about this, but it's sort of dropped in as if everybody understands that this is, this is just undeniable truth. That, hey, like the earth is going to burn up anyway and we're out of here. Like it's just mentioned in passing that the world's going to burn up. And so like we're all out of here. The message was like let's focus on what's really important because the world isn't really important. And it makes me mad because it justifies our exploitation of the planet. That it's okay if we pollute the water and the air and deforest uh, the planet. That we can treat creation as our own personal garbage dump because it's all going down in flames anyway. Did anybody hear this before? It's usually not put as starkly as that, but that's basically what it means. And there's only one problem with that. The Bible. The Bible does not agree with that. And it does not teach that. If you look at the end of our story, we don't see creation burned up and discarded like a piece of trash. It's not blown up like Alderaan in Star Wars. We see it refined. Did you know that fire is a refining agent in Scripture, not a discarding agent? The fact that the, the world will burn doesn't mean that it's burning away. It means that all the things that, are, uh, that have infected this world in a way that prohibits human flourishing are going to be burned off so that it can, the rest of it can be refined as gold is. And it needs to be refined because the end of our story says that heaven is actually going to come down to earth. We're not just going to fly away forever. Jesus is coming here. New Jerusalem is coming here. And what that means is that in our story, friends, we cherish and we protect the planet as God's image bearers to make it ready for its creator. We don't discard it. The idea to rule is to steward something on behalf of another until that other can come and claim what's rightfully his. That's our job. That's what it means to rule. What about subdue? The idea of subdue means to sort of uh, take the wild out of something. It's to, um, it's to make it a place of hospitality. If you, if you went and bought a piece of land out in the Pine Barrens and it's nothing but swamps and trees, 
Now, you couldn't probably build on it because they would probably declare it wetlands, which, you know, and then you can't do anything with it. But let's just say you could. <laughs> and you decide to clear off the trees and you build a home and then you invite people into that home. That's the idea of subdue. It's to, it's to make creation hospitable for everyone to live in safety and peace. It's to take wilderness and turn it into a place where people can thrive. And it's, it's hard for us to understand um, the necessity of this kind of work because we live in the 21st century. We're in a semi-temperature-controlled room. It's not, as, it's not as warm as any of us would like it to be, but it's warmer than it is on, on the outside of those windows, right? Most of us have had our coffee and our breakfast this morning. There are no wild animals in here. For us, creation doesn't seem like this place that needs subduing most of the time. Sometimes it does. It roars up and we're like, whoa, okay. You know, it, I, we've had eight inches of snow. I better get my bread and milk. Um, sometimes creation does rear its head, but most of the time we pretend it's hospitable, <laughs> right? But for ancient Israel, for the people that would have heard this, they're going, we really do need to subdue the earth because it is a dangerous place. We can't just go to Whole Foods and get our organic strawberries. We need to till the earth and make it produce something for us. There are dangerous animals out there, and we need to build fences to guard our children. It's a dangerous place. It's inhospitable. And God's desire is that humans would have the opportunity to participate in making creation a home for every living, living thing. In fact, there's, there's a way of reading Genesis 1 and 2 that I find very intriguing. And that is that when you get to Genesis 2 and it talks about the fact that, that Adam and Eve are in Eden, this idyllic place where they have every good thing to eat, all their needs are taken care of. God says to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth with my presence and your presence, subdue everywhere, not just the garden. From Genesis 1, what do we see is actually outside of the garden? Formlessness and void. Chaos. In fact, if, if you know, we, we talk about Adam and Eve as being the very first people and some of the conundrums that that creates, because like, for instance, when Cain, their son, goes out from God's presence, what, where does he go? He, he goes to a city. A city? Is it empty? No, no, it's not empty. Wait, there are people there? Like outside of the garden? Yeah, outside of the garden. So it, what creates all these problems, right? But for Genesis 1 and 2, the, the idea is that Adam and Eve were a prototype of what humanity was to look like. And Eve, Eden wasn't supposed to stay this little sort of bubble of God's goodness and protection. It was supposed to expand from Eden out to every place around the globe until the, the earth is covered with the glory of God as the waters cover the seas. They were supposed to expand God's hospitality to every living creature, including the cities that Cain ends up in, and so on and so forth. In other words, I mean, think of it this way. God didn't give us a, uh, like a perfect cookie-cutter home. He gave us a fixer-upper. God gave us a world, and he intended to partner with us in making that world a home for everything. I'll let you think about that for, for two weeks. 
rule <laughs> and subdue. These are the two commands. Or you can think of them as steward and practice hospitality. Steward and practice hospitality. Stewarding has to do with ordering and arranging, making sense, pushing back the, the chaos, right? Um, pushing back the void, creating pockets where something can happen within those spaces of, of goodness and order. And then hospitality is sort of nurturing and welcoming and creating and filling within those pockets. Now, I, I don't know if this schema helps you, but maybe you're, you understand yourself as someone who sort of brings order and arrangement to the world. That's good work. That's creation work that God has given you. If you're sort of an, an, or an order or arranger. Or, or maybe, on the other hand, you're someone who's, who sort of brings freedom and creativity and flourishing. You love to, to interact with people, to help them feel like they have a home, or, or just to be creative in general, to fill space with like meaning and goodness. You don't care so much for the ordering and arranging. Well, that's good work, too. One is not better or worse than the other, and one is not a male vocation and the other a female vocation because we see men and women ruling together, stewarding together, giving hospitality together. They go together because we need both. So we bear Christ's authority in our vocations, in our places. All of you spend time somewhere doing something, right? And some of our work looks more like ordering and shaping, and some of our work looks more like welcoming and creating. Friends, what is the work that God has given you to do? What's the work he's given you to do? Maybe this is helpful. Uh, if it's not, toss it out. Um, you won't hurt my feelings. Maybe instead you could just think about like the areas of your primary influence and responsibility. Where has God given you authority? And then how is it good news today that God isn't merely tolerating you there? You're not a nuisance to him or to others in that environment. God isn't looking at your foibles and your failures or your job performance. And, and he isn't just exasperated and angry with you there. But he's created you to bear his authority right there where you live and breathe and work. And the glory and majesty is just below that of the angels. You're an icon of eternity right there as a mom, as a wife, as a husband, as a business owner, as a nurse, as a teacher. You're made to display the glory and the love of Jesus right there. That wherever you are, it wouldn't be very good unless you were there. And you bring the very goodness into the created order because God has placed you where he's placed you. Friends, today the good news is that as we gaze at Christ, he is reclaiming and redeeming his image in you. Not just so that you can fly away someday. Not so that you can look back on when you were a wretch and sing Amazing Grace. I mean, go ahead and do that. But friends, he's got so much more for you than that. He's conferring on you a kingdom. He's made you into a priest to mediate his goodness to the world. And so today, God trusts you. Your life and your vocation are sacred. Let's consecrate it. To consecrate means to offer it up as a good gift for God to redeem and fill with his presence and power, yeah? What needs consecration in your life today? Let's pray. Father, um, we thank you that we are made in your image. That our goodness runs deeper than our badness. 
Yes, the, the image in us is distorted, mired, um, misshapen in ways that we are probably only just slightly in touch with, but we feel the effects of those things. But God, I, I'm reminded that we don't deal with the effects of our brokenness by denying our goodness. We remember our goodness in the light of our Savior. Jesus, we thank you for the work that you're doing in us. And we thank you that we can say with no qualifications that your creation is very good. Help us, God, to live into the image and, and likeness that you've created in our work, in our home, with our friends. May we see it as royal and holy 